0: I am your host Kyle, and joining me this week is the energetic and enigmatic economist <laughs> Eric Mason. Two I nicest can... words anybody's
1: ever said about me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I got to get some extra alliteration in there because the economist and Eric was already there for me. <laughs> uh, before diving into today's discussion, though, I just like to take a quick moment to say thank you to our sponsors and friends over at Manscape Trade Pro Academy and Orderflow Labs. By now, everyone should know that Manscaped is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming, but did you know they just launched the line of beard care products? Lucky for you, we have that exclusive offer of 20% off and free worldwide shipping using promo code 2BULLS at manscaped.com. As always, that is the number two. And when it comes to institutional quality trading education, look no further than tradeproacademy.com. Our free Discord server, you'll also find instructions to take advantage of our discount with them as well. And for all you degenerates who enjoy trading futures, you'll definitely want to look into the custom tools and studies over at orderflowlabs.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you can learn more about today's guest by following Eric on LinkedIn, or you can check out his website, theinformaleconomist.com. Make sure we have links for all that stuff in the episode description. And lastly, uh, be sure to reach out with your suggestions, corrections, or questions for future guests. Do that via email at twobowlsatfinancialineptitude.com or join our free Discord server. Where a bunch of amazing people gather to share our struggles and lessons learned with other like-minded market aficionados. All those links will be put in the episode description. But now that we got all that crap out of the way, let's uh, let's let's talk to today's guest, Eric. What's going on, man? It's been it's been about a year since I think we chatted last.
1: Uh, nothing, nothing much, uh, Kyle. You know, we uh, yeah, I have a couple of fun things. Finished up grad school, started teaching, had. Uh... You no, know, just general chaos in my life. Uh, so you know, that's always <laughs> fun. How about you, Kyle? You know, I've, I've, uh, I've been watching you from afar, from the Discord server, from your right. you know, from uh, from the podcast. You know, I've been able to talk to you in a while.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's been a lot of chaos as well. I I haven't finished my grad school yet, but <laughs> we've definitely been diving headfirst into to doing some more of these mini series. Learn to trade, like trying to get some deeper dives into some some fun topics. So maybe we should do a crash course on economy. On the economy.
1: Hey, sign me up. That's, that's what, <laughs> you, I mean, you won't be able to get me to shut up. But that's uh, like I feel <laughs> bad for my students half the time. They ask me, they ask me a simple question four hours later. I'm like, I don't even remember what the question was. What the hell's going on? Where am I?
0: Well, you're gonna have to explain grad school to me then. So you have students, but you're learning.
1: Yeah. So I uh, I finished, and uh, actually in August, I finished I finished my uh, my master's degree. Actually, at my undergrad, Allamanda Wvu. And mm-hmm. then two weeks later, I started teaching uh, their Econ 201 course. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, oh wow. Which broke the system. I was, like, logging in trying to try and change my class, and I kept getting alerts. It was like, oh, you have, you don't have, you're have a student. You don't have the right to access this. It's like, no, I'm faculty, now. the switch this. The point, I love that IT team down there is fantastic, but I think if I ever show my face, because I teach remote, mm-hmm. if, uh, in, in the state, they are going to have to try me for something, because nope. the amount of times I emailed them, they were just not happy with it. <laughs>
0: Well, that's actually good to know that they have safeguards in place to keep students from accessing faculty information. Yeah. <laughs> actually, uh, just out of curiosity, have you run into any issues with uh, ChatGPT, uh, students using that to, to write papers for you? So
1: I am a big fan of ChatGPT. Oh, oh did, to did it help out. you
0: pass your grad course?
1: <laughs> no, oh, no. You, you, <laughs> wow, you talk to me. Do you think I'm going to let somebody else write stuff for me? I have no, way too not. much fun doing this. <laughs> Uh, no, we, so, you know, it's funny. It's, a, it's an arms race between cheating and catching cheating. Uh, mm-hmm. And what I can tell you is that all the new software, it's like Pack Back, Turn It In, um, they are so, they have GPT integrated into their own platforms. So they can tell when a student is trying to cheat, but uh, using it. But I can tell you what I do because, you know, man, I, I, I'm, I'm too hands-on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll take my questions I ask and I'll throw them in the chat GPT. And I'll be like, write an answer at a, at a like, you know, freshman level. And I'll oh. read what GPT does, and I'll try and compare it to what my students are doing. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, I can be, uh, I get. A, sometimes I get a little too much in the weeds. Trying to, trying to get lazy in my class <laughs> can not be a fun time.
0: Uh, man, I could see that being, uh, I don't know, it seems like the easiest way is just ask the student to rephrase what they wrote. I,
1: so it's funny, last semester they didn't have this stuff integrated in yet. And mm. I swear, I got I caught a couple kids with it, not knowing yet. Because I'd just be like, you need, to, you need to narrow this down. You need to narrow down this, this answer. This is mm-hmm. too broad. And they would write a, a, on a whole new subject.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Uh,
1: but, you know, as somebody who loves microeconomics, and I love game theory, I respect it. I respect the effort the kids are putting in to try and get around the system.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we adapted to calculators, right? right? So, I mean... It's a future. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Like, do we really need to write essays? I mean, we just need to figure out another way to, to prove that somebody understands the information, right?
1: Yeah, at the end of the day, all I care is about is the students' learning. Do they Are they learning and understanding the material? Yes. That's all that matters to me.
0: Or, or learning how to cheat well, those are all good skills I don't endorse that forever when
1: it, if any administrators no, are watching no. this, and listening to this you guys get popular now, and I have to be careful so you know, years ago I could come on here and be a Geroni but now, now you guys uh, you got all these great companies you're advertising for and I'm sitting there trying to tell you not to cheat using your but
0: so we're not that big I don't think you have to worry that much oh you're still in the government, right? Yes,
1: I am. Still at the local government level, still taxing people, still uh still film <laughs> schools.
0: <laughs> Was that an elected position? Did you have to go through a cycle or do you get uh do you get just hired by the city?
1: Yeah, so I look out I'm just an appointment. So okay. uh, we we actually are in the executive branch at our level, we only have one elected official, it's a mayor. Uh, we have a strong mayor form of government, so he is the chief elected official and he just mm-hmm. po- appoints you. So work, works out. I, I serve a three year term as an appointment. Mm-hmm. A uh, little job security.
0: <laughs> yeah. So when did that start? Uh,
1: 2021. So I got another year before he has oh, to yeah. uh, take me out back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it should be good. Just keep doing a good job. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Anything nice you want to say about the mayor?
1: Oh, yeah, no. Honestly, <laughs> he's pays my mortgage, but no, he's, you know, it's weird. He's apolitical. Doesn't belong to oh. any political party.
0: Ah, fuck. We need more of that.
1: Yeah. He's of all the, yeah, we're sitting north of 100,000. I think he's like the. Mayor of the largest city, who doesn't want a political party, and right. I, I got to tell you, especially he's working in quantitative fields like finance and economics, and, and the stuff I do every day, it's amazing mm-hmm. to work for somebody who's not so obsessed with the political environment. Uh, that you know, pot, he always says to me, he's like All right, pothole politics. You can't go left, you can't go right. You got to fix the pothole He goes, people care about fixing potholes. And when I go to when you go to work, and work is about building new special needs centers, building new schools. Uh, you know building new parks um, and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and you see the political environment that's in the rest of the country you know I try and stay clear of politics but yeah me too yeah like (laughs) like, you know I think we all feel kind of that angst where Americans feel like it's American versus American but going to work working in government where you're like hey do you know what that kid who used to ride on a bus for two hours to get to a special needs program can now go down the street yeah you're going to feel good about that and know that that's our focus as opposed to trying to have some crazy political discussion that's so beyond local government, it makes you feel good. And, you know, it's rare to find politicians who are like that, to be honest. And it's one of the many reasons I like working for him and why he's been in office 20 years.
0: Yeah, I bet. Uh, all right. Well, that should, uh, that should seal the deal for your next term. <laughs> 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 oh, last time we had you on, I think was about the time when, uh, Russia was uh, getting a little belligerent, um, <laughs> Uh, it doesn't seem like much has really changed there, but we were talking about the effects that the sanctions were having uh, or might have on on Russia. And I think you were trying to explain uh, basically how that was, the, how their market was so decoupled from from the rest of the world, basically, right? That, yes. that anything that happened there was not really going to have much of an effect uh, on the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, I mean exactly. So Russia is effectively a petrostate. It's a pariah petrostate. It's it's Iran with nuclear weapons. If we're being honest, um, right? And you know, the weakest currency on earth is Iran's currency, and the rubles following that. Um, the weakest market currency on earth is Vietnam. Um, really? Yeah. So the, the Vietnamese dong, but that's in that's by design. So oh. um, Vietnam inherently. Devalues their currency. I mean, Vietnam's actually a big, really good economy and a really good.
0: Uh, yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, I mean, they got a really solid uh, education that they're starting to put in place. Uh, I thought they were like challenging to be like the next, like I guess South Korea.
1: Yeah, no, you, you got you're 100 percent right. Um, so, f- fun fact, you know, the city, uh, the city I grew up in, we're 40 Asian Americans. So, some of my best friends growing up with Vietnamese, mm-hmm. and it's weird to see like a country that produces such great engineers and has a really, you know. Sp- growing, and as you said, I mean, you hit it right on the nose, a growing education system. People go, they, they, you know, I've talked about this before, they go, how the, what? The, they have the weakest currency on earth? And I go, well, they have the weakest currency on earth that's tradable. I mean, the the uh, I, Iranians' currency is the weakest currency on earth, but you can't trade it. Mm-hmm. Venezuela's currency the boulevard, is very, very weak. But Vietnam does that intentionally because Vietnam is actually, I would just argue that Vietnam for a de- for developing economy is very well run. Yeah. Because, What Vietnam does is that there's a trade advantage. If you are a massive exporter, a weak currency benefits you greatly. Yes. And I'll put it this way. So say you have a jar, all right? Um, If you fill it with golf balls, you're going to have a lot of empty space. But if you fill it with sand, you're not going to have that much empty space. That's the trade advantage. Weak currencies, when they're they're exporters, get trade advantages by having smaller units. Mm -hmm. That's the same reason why China devalues the yuan. But unfortunately, China can only devalue the yuan so much because it's a reserve currency held at the IMF. So as much as China tries to uh, dilute its currency, the IMF can simply counteract that because they hold so much yon. Okay. So Vietnam is this very very weak currency, but it's intentionally done because they know they're such large net exporters.
0: That makes sense because the U.S. I know when the dollar is weak, like uh, that gets that's really good for businesses that uh, yeah. in the U.S. because we end up exporting a lot more to like Europe and other places because their purchasing power goes further.
1: Right, it, 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 like that's that's a Hall of Fame example right there. Exactly. It's yeah. It's uh, weaker currencies are better for export trade. Um it, countries that are very, very heavy importers, it's better to have strong currencies. And the the best example of that is obviously the Great <laughs> up until a few months ago, the Great British pound, mm-hmm. which used to be a dollar sixty to the do, uh, to the dollar. And uh, so Britain obviously historically a massive net importer, wanted a stronger currency because it increased in domestic buying power. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that hasn't, with their um, political upheaval, yeah. that that's been kind of difficult to maintain. One way to say it. <laughs> yeah, I, trying to, I have a lot of British friends, and i, <laughs> I <tried laughs> <not to do. laughs> but what we're seeing with the, but all these things we discussed, and all these things are really good to know, about if you're, see, it's kind of a fun topic, because if you really like economics, or you like history or politics, currency's interesting. Mm-hmm. But if you're, like, somebody does forex day trading, it's also interesting to kind of know some of the stuff, and you know, currency's always been one of my favorite topics to discuss. But when we move to the ruble um, and we move to understanding what's happening in Russia right now from a sanction perspective and from a currency perspective, is that it's massive capital outflows. And unfortunately or fortunately, depending on kind of your long-term view of what's best for the, the people of the world, mm-hmm. um, the sanctions, we now know, you know, eight months, 10 months after last time you and I talked, that these sanctions are working. They're incredibly effective. Uh, but a part that's maybe something that we don't fully grasp yet is that this has effectively destroyed the Russian economy for all intents and purposes. Wow. Sometimes we call this the flower syndrome. So you go and pick a rose and you put it in a glass of water. Mm-hmm. That rose is dead. That rose is dead. It still looks pretty. Yeah. It still working. and it still smells, but there's nothing you're ever going to be able to do to revive that rose. Um, and that's where we're at. Um, we the, 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 They are running out of money or they have effectively, their treasury's already run out of money. Um, they can't sustain operations. They can't, they, they, their financial future, their, their capping of oil prices, the reduction in oil values is really going, has really eroded their free-flowing currency in there. So when the war, without all these sanctions, Europe started buying, continued to buy gas from, from Russia. That allowed some stable currencies to flow in. That is the water in the vase of the rose. Right. All right. It's going to keep it alive longer than if you throw it on the ground. Right, right. But it doesn't change that it's dead. <laughs> and the part of me, when I look at this, when I look at it as a, as a labor economist, when I look at it as somebody who studies you know, the most temperamental part of an economy, which is the people who work in it, mm-hmm. we have to talk about this thing called capitalization value. So why is the U.S. so productive? Why does U.S. have such crazy high wages compared to the rest of the world, even developed countries? It's because for every American, there's $46,000 in capital that they use in their job. So you take how you work plus the capital you get. We call this marginal production of labor if we're going to get real technical. Um, and that's your wage. Mm-hmm. If capital leaves your economy, so this is called solo growth model. Uh, Dr. Robert Solo won a Nobel Prize in the 80s for this. Um, it's a background for how we study economies growing or shrinking in this case all that capital outflow. flow. So not only do you have a weak currency people don't trust, that's being propped up by the government, you now have capital leaving. People are becoming less productive, earning less money, and sanctions cause food prices, commodity prices to skyrocket. Now, you can drain your reserves. If you're the Russian treasurer, you can drain your reserves to try and keep that alive. You can pour more water into the vase, but it's dead. Yeah, And we are not going to be able to reverse that. I think that's something that has to be discussed in terms of... In, Honestly, personally, let's not reverse it. I don't I don't really care. They're not Russia doesn't innovate. They don't produce new things. The world's not any worse or better off. Um, this isn't a country that can make intensive goods. They don't make better goods, they're not making cars, they're making ventilators, they're not making they, they try to make airplanes,
0: but they're not good airplanes. Yeah, I would learn that lesson from Ukraine. Yeah. They used so, to be really good at that stuff, though. What happened?
1: Yeah, so like um you know, you look at the Tubalove uh, 144, right? Yeah. Uh, it was like, their version of the Concorde. Um, it, fl- it flew before the Concorde, but no one ever flew mail because it kept crashing.
0: No, oh, no, I'm thinking about like the MiGs and uh, like oh, yeah. back in like the uh, World War II when they came up with the T, the T the tank series. Um, yeah, 234s. Yeah. I mean, those uh, were like that. That's what basically Germany copied when they made their Panzers.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, and the funny thing about T thirty four is that it was heavily influenced by American design because I mean, the, it, we have this weird thing in like history. I love history. Yeah, me too. Like, <laughs> we forget that the biggest benefit, benefactor of the lend lease program was in England. It was Russia. Oh, really? Like even yeah, even Stalin said that like they would have lost the war was it, for the lend lease program in the United States. So two of their best airplane, two of their best equipments uh, was the T thirty four, which was based on U.S. designs. Uh, It was Russified, Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to discount Russia. That's not fair. But the the P-63 Arakoba, which was uh, this one of the first liquid cooled airplanes of all time, uh, liquid cooled like warfare airplanes, had a 37 millimeter cannon in the front. um, Really was a stopgap until the Ilusha Two, the flying tank, Mm -hmm. uh, was built. Was able to be built. Um, But there's a lot of. It's very very funny. There's a lot of um, military historians I put one in the top ten most important military vehicles during World War Two. Was the Studebaker transportation vehicles um, that we'd given the Russians that actually ended up breaking? Those were what broke this the siege of Leningrad because mm-hmm. they were able they were light enough, but, but well, they spread their weight out enough to be able to drive across a lot of the frozen lakes to get to relieve the city. Right. Um, so it, it is one of those weird things we talk about, like the major geopolitical parties in the world. It's you know U.S., China, and Russia. We're three countries that never fought each other.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> <Are you laughs> <that> weird. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean. Kinda right. The,
1: yeah, we were involved. The Americans were involved in the the White Revolution in Russia. Yeah, um,
0: the, there's it's it's a weird thing that we do. We're just like, okay, uh, Russia's mad at Afghanistan, so let's go arm all their troops over there, and we'll yeah. send some people over there to teach them how to fight.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, it's even funny if you look at the history of the U.S. and China, where it's like, anytime there's been an armed conflict, we've been on the same side.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's just objectively been on the same side. It's not like, oh, uh, like, if we, we, like, we fight, pro- obviously, we fought proxy wars against Russia. I guess the only proxy war you could argue we ever fought against China was the Korean War. Probably the most politically interesting war of all time. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like, every time China's been invaded, we've come to China's aid.
0: Yeah. China's been ahead of, I mean, I was just listening to a really good podcast talking about the Japanese side of World War II and just like, man, China's been like a punching bag for centuries
1: yeah um so let me tell you, tell you a weird fact you know the weird fact of the day so the gentleman who dropped the bomb on nagasaki is from quincy um uh, went to the same high school uh colonel charles sweeney all right the guy who dropped the bomb on hiroshima was from quincy illinois oh. so the only two people to ever drop atomic weapons in war were both from cities called quincy and both aren't weren't that big of cities when they were <laughs> when they were born huh uh, this is a weird. Weird history fact. Yeah, it's
0: very weird.
1: <laughs> but, oh yeah, do you know what's weird about Japan? Okay, so the after World War II, um, Emperor Hirohito stayed in power until George H.W. Bush was elected. What? Yeah, so George H.W. Bush, who dropped bombs on Imperial Japanese naval cruisers, was elected president, and the guy he was dropping bombs against was still Emperor of Japan.
0: That is bizarre. Yeah. The whole the story of Japan after World War II was one of the things that fascinates me more than anything else. Watching the way a country can completely transform itself in such a short period of time and then turn into an economic powerhouse in the region.
1: Yeah. It, nuclear umbrella. That, that's what allowed them to do it. They did need to spend money on defense because of the United yeah. States.
0: That's a hard thing to... Or i think anybody to turn around and be like okay you won that uh we'll go ahead and work with you if you just take care of us and we'll we'll, we'll do the rest
1: <laughs> it, it is see it's funny if, uh, i often wonder if russia had uh i mean russia didn't invade manchuria till the day uh, like around the same time we dropped the bomb in hiroshima mm-hmm. but if russia had ever been more proactive in you know the pacific theater would japan have been partitioned like germany and i think the answer is probably yes oh i bet uh we don't see that so you ended up with one rule one effective ruler for about 10 years plus a nuclear umbrella that's extended the last 75 years and you end up with a country that has the highest positive view on americans and vice versa like i think it's something like 85 to 90 percent of japanese uh people view americans positively and fight and i'm pretty sure that statistics going the other way is the same way with how americans view the japanese and it's like that's we dropped we dropped two atomic weapons on this country within like a generation yeah where they're probably our closest ally besides probably england or australia
0: i know um, ah, history is fascinating <laughs> i know that's
1: completely off topic what I, uh, I know i know uh,
0: but i don't care that's what i love about talking to economists is you never know where the conversation is going to go
1: <laughs> unfortunately
0: <laughs> Well, speaking of uh, uh, off topic, uh, you've mentioned something <laughs> about China that kind of struck me for a minute there about them intentionally devaluing their currency as well.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I thought I had been seeing, too, where there'd been like pushes to try to get the yuan to, to overtake the dollar as like the world currency.
1: Yeah. I think every country on earth wants their. So uh, we, we're in economics, we refer to the dominant global currency as the currency of privilege. Mm mm-hmm. um, it's the it's the unit sum. So Germany lends money to, uh, let's say Germany lends money to Mexico. It goes, you know, euros to dollars, dollars to pesos, and when Mexico pays that back, it goes pesos to dollars, dollars to euros. Mm-hmm. So your, your your medium of exchange is the dollar. Everybody wants to be in that position. Everybody wants to. Like, who doesn't want to be on top? Like that's the craziest thing in the world, right? right? Like who does want to be the political dominant? And uh, whatever, what you know, whatever. Things that we've learned over the last 40 years is economic warfare is the, the warfare of the modern age uh, mm-hmm. you know, major peer to peers don't stand toe-to-toe and fight each other it just doesn't happen anymore uh which is good that's a good thing that we're not seeing hundreds of thousands of people dying in war every year i'm not going to complain about that <laughs>
0: <laughs> they're not getting shot but i uh, mean i'm sure there's people starving though
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely and that's why you know when we talk about globalization and the, mm-hmm. the rise of a uniformed economy you know, rising tide lifts all boats. And, you know, we've only had one great famine since 2000. Um, and that was caused by the, uh, that was in Yemen, it was caused by the Saudi-Yemen war. Mm-hmm. Uh, where in the 1900s, we had about 57 great famines that killed, you know, 10 dozens of millions of people. So oh, yeah, wow. you're understand right. It's that, you know, if we can continue to develop and, you know, kind of put push these economic reforms forward, we, we can save more people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, what's, what's interesting is that, when you become the dominant currency of the world, uh, which the Brits were before we were, uh, it comes with a lot of caveats. It comes with a lot of dangers. Now it's in China's case is that uh, it's political prestige. Um, you know, we want to be the dominant currency. Yeah. When you're a net exporter like China, when you're constantly exporting goods, you need to manipulate your currency.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: if your currency is constantly being manipulated, I don't want to make manipulative sound bad. I'm saying from economic
0: standpoint. Yeah, that's the that's might not be the right term to use in that case. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, let's say strategically devalued. Yes, that um, works.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can tell I work in government. Yep. yep. <laughs> so when they strategically devalue the currency, they're trying to get a trade a trade advantage, which is fine because they usually trade with much much wealthier nations. Yeah. Um, in the wealthiest areas of China, the average income is about sixteen thousand. GDP per capita is about sixteen thousand. Or in the U.S., you know, you're talking sixty to seventy thousand. Um, they're just not comparable. And if you look at the places where the, meat, or the goods are being produced in China, they're, the GDP per capita is more around 9,500. In the U.S., you know we do have ebb and flows of GDP per capita. If you look at different states, but relatively, we're every state wealthy. The poorest state is still, you know, five times wealthier than the, some of the richest parts of even parts of the EU. Right. Um, so, what China wants to value this now, there, if you want to become a dominant currency in the world, all right your first step is you need to join the IMF needs to label you a reserve currency. So, uh, the reserve currencies of the world, are like the dollar, yeah, the, pound, yeah. the euro, the on the yen. Um, that's first up, That's great. All right. So, you know, you're one of the big boys and it, I always found it funny cause uh, I was asked on a show a little while ago, they're like, what do you mean by reserve currency? And I go, okay, so you drive your boat up to the Panama canal and they're like, Hey, pay the toll. Well, those are one of the currencies you can pay the toll on. Right. Which is a horribly simplified example. But that's considered like, what are it's, it's it's
0: basically like a universally accepted. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. Exactly. It's okay. like, you know, you go to Dave and Buster's and you get, some, you get one of those cards, you swipe it. So it doesn't matter yep. what type of money you put on the card, it's still going to make the game work. Right, right. <laughs> Arcade economics money podcast, follow
0: me. <laughs> Dave and Buster's economics, that works. I think most people can understand <laughs> that. <laughs>
1: uh, so what um, ends up happening is China wants to dock it. They want the new red back is what they call it. Mm. Uh, but you're a net exporter. And, and you you're trying to deploy your currency. Well the IMF holds you know, millions hundreds of millions millions of billions of dollars of their currency. So if you try and devalue your currency, if you try to flood the market say you practice senior rich so you're trying to devalue the dollar of your currency, well guess what the IMF's going to do they're gonna pull their money back out of the out of the system and suddenly you're, you're not finding something with a counterweight. Um, and that can be very problematic for, for uh, countries that are trying to become a dominant player. Who simultaneously want to maintain the advantages of being an independent currency, but what it, one of the big things it really comes down to is uh, Niall Ferguson in, in his book *The Ascent of Money* describes money as something interesting: trust inscribed. Hmm. Do you trust the the country that that currency is from mm. to be stable and to be uh, practical, to be pragmatic? Yeah. Since the inception of the United States, we refuse to practice something called seniorage. Um, seniorage is when you print money to pay bills, effectively um the u.s does not do that it does not practice that uh-huh. um that's why we have such a high national debt is um, every dollar that we pay out has to be borrowed or taxed um so our currency stays very stable over time okay and that makes people trust our dollars
0: okay so we do print money we just basically have to pay it back still
1: yeah, yeah. so um you like uh, let's look at the fed balance sheet. So, uh, it's blooded down a little bit but during the height of the pandemic it was seven trillion bucks give or yeah. take now we can look at these statistics we have monetary base M one supply, M two supply, then I'm kind of the Metric we don't use in economics that much anymore, but I'm sure there's some economist listening to the show who's going to write me a very angry letter about <laughs> M um, three. So, so monetary base is how much money that the. Treasury essentially has printed. How many dollars have flown out there? Okay. And one is the money that's in people's like checking accounts and cash. People have the money that's like existing that you could use. Mm-hmm. Um, and then M2 is money that's held in mortgages and in slightly less liquid but accessible ways. And what we saw back in uh, quantitative easing after the 2008 recession is that we saw no about how much money you printed and how much money you put in the economy. Um, M1 and M2 didn't respond in that much of a correlated manner. Um, and we saw that again um, with the pandemic. Uh, and this really comes down to kind of a concept. We have an economist called money velocity, um, which is how fast a dollar moves to the economy. So we have $1 in the economy. Milton Friedman was kind of the guy who pioneered this, so I won't give credit to him. Okay. Um, so money velocity is really, is a much larger equation that deals like inflation, monetary base size, all that stuff. But basically, money velocity is how fast a dollar can move through the economy. So back when Milton Friedman wrote this, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, money wasn't that fast, right? Like, credit cards were just kind of come to exist. The idea of a debit card, and an ACH, and a wire wiretrane exists. Right, right. So, money, you got to print more money because your money needed to maintain some absolute speed, right? So, more money you have, the money can move slower, but you still have the effect of monetary base.
0: Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Uh,
1: but now, like, you know, say one of the, you know, somebody on the show wants to get a good product from, from Manscaped. You know what? What are they going to do? They're going to take out their debit card or credit card, punch it in, and get you know twenty percent off and free shipping throughout the world. So that money is instantly, snappy your finger, is gone. Yeah. right? Yeah. One dollar times infinite speed is the same value as seven point five trillion times infinite speed. So that process, you essentially have the same size, the same size effective monetary base. So no matter how much money you print, because money's moving so quickly, it doesn't really matter. It, it, you have the it's money's there's never been a liquidity trap and that's a uh, built uh sorry not bill Friedman. god not definitely not bill freeman mm-hmm. other side of the spectrum john Maynard Keynes talked <laughs> about liquidity traps um that you know you can you, you can have a growing economy you can have capital resources but if you don't have the liquidity you don't have the monetary base that can hurt your economy and you know i'm not the biggest Keynesian in the world though so i like it I'm an Austrian. Like I'm, That's my school. That's what I believe. But I think there's still, I have a lot of respect for the Keynesian field for some of the stuff they've done at Macro. But we based that out of a super long-winded, but basically because money's moving so quickly, we don't see that much inflationary effect that's caused from money printing.
0: Ah, that's fascinating. Long-time fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back. Fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email Pullen at fairwaymc.com fairway independent mortgage has an mls number of 2289 sue Mackey has an mls number of 206048 that email again spullen at fairwaymc.com and that phone number is 520-977-7904 shoot sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address uh so so then let me think here how to phrase this next uh, question i was going to ask you something about swift Oh. <laughs> like a swift the you know, swift obsolete then or why are we still using that then if money can move you know instantaneously why do we still have something that takes you know two days to clear
1: okay so this is this is uh this is this is really interesting i like this a lot so i uh, I'm not have to like the things we talk about. You know, you can just completely, you can just.
0: Uh, I'm always worried that I'm going to ask you something that's completely out of left field. You're going to have no idea. <laughs>
1: oh no! I love, I'm i such an nerd, man. I, I, I love this stuff. I mean, I hope I find something. I love when I find out stuff from left field that I'm like, I have no idea about that. I'll spend the next three days. Trying oh no, to right? It. Me too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's yeah, so the Swift. So why why does Swift matter? Well, the reason Swift matters is that it's the same reason that the rules of a football game matter, right? Like football game is going to be an hour long. Well, American football is going to be an hour long, right? Mm-hmm. But you can change the rules, right? Like, you know, they, I'm from new England. So Brady rule, right? You know, <laughs> you, you can't hit somebody in the knees. Oh, now that's actually the most controversial thing. I've actually <laughs> probably ever started. I guess that's the one that's going to get me.
0: <laughs> that are over-inflating your balls or deflating, <laughs> deflating, right?
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, where uh, So what SWIFT does is SWIFT is a system of rules that everybody follows to move money from different economies, from different, legisl- I would say, um, judicial districts, like there, are p- different rules, different laws for how money has to be handled. Okay. So the world basically came together and said, hey, we're moving, we're moving a lot of money, guys. We got to figure out a way that we can move this money and everybody has the same rules, but we're not going to move it nation treasury to nation treasury. That, that's problematic for many reasons. We Let's all come up with a system. We're going to have, I think it's like 38,000 different banks do it. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going to follow. So we can move money from different um, you know, different legal frameworks, but everybody follows the
0: same. So did the banks write the rules, I'm guessing?
1: Yeah. So how uh, does is work? <laughs> yeah. I mean, banks write rules for everything. It's
0: like, we'll, we'll handle this for you guys. Don't worry. You don't need to go to the treasuries. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. Um, so there is a. It's based out. Uh, it's actually based out of Belgium, I believe, or Brussels. It's um, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's based out of the uh, EU, a uh, country in the EU, and um, they have a. There's a essentially a committee that comes up with these rules, and they're very, very detailed. Like it's almost overly legislated. I mean, again, I'm an Austrian, so I'm always going to default to less regulation, but this is probably good. Um, and they come up with these set of rules that everybody has to follow, and if you don't follow them, you're no longer part of the SWIFT system, and by shutting people off from the SWIFT system. You basically, take banks can no longer move money, and then when a bank can't move money, it becomes problematic for really nuanced reasons. One, banks instantly snap your fingers, they lose hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue they get for yearly for moving money to open markets overnight. Mm-hmm. So, when your bank closed, uh, it's going to move money to a market that's open and provide intraday liquidity, right? That's why the LIBOR rate is so important. Uh, even though the library rate is completely made up, there's actually no math behind why that's the number, but we all just kind of <laughs> accept it. <laughs> just so small tangent. When yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, back in 2021, uh, we sold a 475 million dollar pension obligation bond. Now, it's the largest, the largest like local uh, pension obligation bond, I think in U.S. history, it's definitely in state history. And so, I sold it on. the I should say my team. My team did all the work. I just, I just sit there and sign like 37 pieces of paper. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We get four hundred seventy-five million dollars in cash, right? About four hundred seventy-three million in cash, um, right? Uh, once we adjust for some of the issuance costs, and it, we sell it on twelve fourteen, we get the cash twelve twenty-one, but it can't be invested in the uh, retirement fund until the first of January. So um, we have we, our strategic asset managers, awesome, CFA, tons of experience, worked for some really big white collar firms, just a good shit, and he's on the phone with the bank that's holding the money, having. One of the funniest—I shouldn't say funny because it, it's a very serious topic. Yeah, but he's so well versed in this that it's almost like he should. I, I felt bad. I don't know who was on the other end of the phone, but I assume it was some like probably junior associate who's just like picked up the phone. <laughs> he's so professional, so polite, but it's basically like, okay, I want LIBOR plus like thirty-five, and he's negotiating. And I say to him afterwards, "I'm like, hey, great job." That, that. He goes, "He goes, he goes. We, we, you could earn about seven hundred thousand dollars in interest, but he goes, I want as much interest as I can get off this." Because I know they're just moving this money to some other market right. for like seven days and getting millions of dollars. So I, I'm, t- I'm taking some of that. Yeah, yeah. So we ended up, when we put it invested in the retirement fund, we ended up with like basically not having paid any issuance costs because we had made such a good return. Oh, wow. So I sent them after that. So I, like, I, like, I was like, good job. But but, that, but that's really how these banks operate is that they're moving. And we're only really talking about half a billion bucks. Right. Versus banks have holds, you know, excess of hundred billion. Um, so when you remove it from SWIFT, you can't effectively move your money left and right anymore, so you're losing all that revenue, then people can't move money into your economy. And when you're an economy that relies so heavily on, not just your systems rely on money moving in from other places, but in some, an economic phenomenon we call remittance, which is when people who work outside your country try to send money back into the
0: family. Yeah, yeah. SWIFT
1: allows that. And by being shut off from that system, do you know what it's really like? It's like when we built the interstate highway system and you had these towns that become defunct.
0: Yeah. Because the
1: highway that you go through there no longer moves through
0: there. Or the old railroad towns that ended up dying because the interstate shifted the traffic to something better.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a way better example because, like, rails are such production I like that. Yeah. So kind of, this is, is why I like talking to you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and also, that, uh, like losing access to SWIFT and not being able to move your money, that kind of also ties in with what you're saying about money velocity. Yeah. Now you have all this money, but it can't go anywhere. It's, it's, not, it's basically useless.
1: Exactly. And um, that's why it was it was a shock to me. I think I mentioned this last time we were on the show. I was on the show when I said that. It was a shock to me how aggressive. See, the U.S. was going to shut off SWIFT, no
0: problem. Yeah.
1: But it's not just the U.S.'s call. The U.S. can shut off SWIFT to its banks, which is a huge deal. Yep. But seeing Brussels do that, I was like, wow, okay, this is... we have, People actually give a shit about this. This isn't going to be Crimea or the Donbass. Like, this is... like Russia's going to eat some sanctions. And I think one of the biggest flaws that happened in Russia. See, Russia's economy in 2014, when it invaded Crimea, mm-hmm. was good. Um, in 08, uh, when it when it, when um, you know when it invaded Georgia, it was it was doing good, and that's because there was high oil prices then. Yeah, um, and they were able to fund their military, and they were fighting an inferior opponent. Um, you know, Ukraine of 2014 is not Ukraine of today.
0: No, no, not at all. Actually, but the. the... Uh, you mentioned the high oil prices. I always felt like we were pumping out as much oil as we could during that time, specifically to try to target Russia's economy and and hurt them by making oil cheaper.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's de- that's definitely hugely part of it. The U.S. has um, you know some of the highest proven oil reserves and natural gas reserves. Yeah, and unlike virtually every country that exists on that kind of heartland axis, we don't rely on Russia for for anything. Nope. Um, we don't trade with Russia. This is this is big. I remember when this happened, this is big. Of, oh, how is this going to affect the U.S. oil market? It's not. Yep. <laughs> it's, uh, not. We don't. We, like, less than 1% of oil comes from Russia. Russia doesn't produce particularly good oil. Uh, Russia only is successful in its, its sale of hydrocarbons because of cheap pipelines. It doesn't produce any sort of good oil. Um, it doesn't produce sweet crude. Um, it's mostly sour crude it produces. The U.S., and on top of that, the world has moved so far away from traditional, um, you know, oils, oil to natural gas, mm-hmm. what we call wet natural gas, it's natural gas that has larger polymers in it that can be used to make plastics and stuff and also carries, uh, you know, butane and propane in there. That, that we don't care. Like, it's a way it's, it's, this isn't like an economic war with China or something like that. It's just, oh, okay. Yeah, they're a large country, but they're an empty country. Like yeah. it's, it's a, um, We're not geographically close to you. We don't really need your stuff. I mean, the last time we relied on Russia for exports is when we uh, exported uh, when we imported all that titanium, titanium to build the SR seventy ones. Um, we had made the CIA made a bunch of shell companies
0: and bought a bunch of titanium. <laughs> oh, oh, that's right. hilarious! Yeah. You bought the titanium to spy on them with from them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think about the only well, thing we care about now with Russia is just access to the crab fishing grounds over by Alaska. <laughs> Right,
1: like it's it, it, it is it is weird for how massive of a politi- of a political rival they were for so many years, and how quickly they turned out to be a paper tiger. Yeah, and I think that's an important lesson. I, I always hate this discussion of the U.S. where it's like every you know pair rival, whatever you want to say, we have on Earth, and they say this wonder weapon they have, wonder weapon, wonder weapon, wonder weapon. And I sit there and go like, Dude, we outspend everybody on mil- what do you think our weapons are, man? Yeah. Like, what you- yeah. oh, hypersonic missiles. I'm like. That that's the weirdest discussion to me. Like you know, I, I love science and stuff like that. We have an, intercontin- an intercontinental ballistic missile is a hy- hypersonic missile. It's three times faster than a hypersonic missile. But
0: the subs that I worked on, uh, that I used to work on, I was in the military. I guess I could not, I can't confirm or deny this, but <laughs> uh, when a submarine goes out to sea, it is, becomes the fourth most powerful nuclear nation. Like it's on the same level as the the, the fourth largest nuclear nation. Like yeah. that's the, the capabilities that that submarine has. That's one. We have what like, what seventeen of those?
1: Yeah, just fooling around all the time. And yeah, in, in the nineteen sixties, under the uh, late fifties, early sixties, under the X fifteen program, we had it. We had piloted aircraft that were able to reach twice as fast as hypersonic missiles. Like, what when, do when we do? Of course, the US has had this technology for, forever. I mean, it's like when they show the SU fifty seven, and they're like, "It's the best dog It's like, first off, it's
0: oh, great. No, the the raptor will turn circles around. <laughs> the raptors was just
1: developed in the nineties, like late eighties.
0: That's our fifth gen, yeah, right.
1: It's like, what are we doing here, guys? Like, like it's okay to be positive. Like, we want to be so pessimistic. Um, uh, I don't, uh, you know, I hate conspiracy theories, uh, but one of my favorite conspiracy theories is that it's the DoD that is pumping up all these like other technologies that other countries have. Oh, so they get more money.
0: More than likely, yeah, yeah, exactly. You need that fear in order to keep uh, you know funneling the spending. I and mean, we
1: like you know years ago when they were talking about like oh the Chinese anti carrier system oh going on I'm like dude in the in 1975 we had an F15 shoot down a satellite. Like why are we why, why are we not talking about this? Like oh they have all these satellites. Right. like Dude, we invented a plane. Like we have a plane that could just like 50 years ago could shoot down a satellite. It's the only time in history human history that a that an airplane shot down a satellite. And then we, like, so I'm fully convinced the DoD is like, oh no, you need to be scared of this. Give us more money. And I'm like, cool, you get more money. I'm cool right. that. I like the cool shit you make. <laughs> <laughs> I like my microwave. <laughs> I like GPS.
0: I, I do really hope though that we don't end up obliterating every satellite in the sky because I don't think we'd ever get off the planet again for a while until we figure out how to clean all that yeah, up. Castle syndrome is a
1: little, it's a little scary. I, I, do, I do like space. <laughs> Uh, yes <laughs> but no, it, it's funny because all you know we had you know these, this is obviously a super fun discussion but that's a cool thing about like economics is that it ties into all these things because we really need to account whenever we make an economic decision whenever there's an economic policy change whether it's from filling a pothole to figuring out you know to address trade deficits at the national level is like it's the same rote systematic approach and it's really just about gathering as much information as possible to be able to make these decisions. But it's super fun because we can have a discussion like this and it's all still within that weird sphere of economics where it's like, can you, fit, like, if you can't, if you rely solely on selling oil like like, like Russia and that feeds 50% of your governmental operations, do you have enough money to invest in some like crazy cruise missile program? Like, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> like, bro, <just> a darn <laughs> up, probably not.
0: <laughs> Well, even during the Cold War, that's what bankrupted them, is trying to keep up with our spending. We just outspent yeah, them. That's always the
1: funny thing about, like, people talk about Reagan economics. So, like, I, I'm not a believer in triple-down economics, because um, like, I don't think there's any evidence for it. And I'm just like, people yep. act like Reagan was this, like, big fiscal conservative. Don't get me wrong, I love Reagan. He was who we needed for, for the country at the time. And it was just like, nah, no, we just outspend them. We, we just, <laughs> no, we're going to spend more money than you, like.
0: Just look, yeah. You just look at the balance sheets. Like, oh no, this would be easy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Russia's annual budget to run the country of Russia all right, is two hundred billion dollars.
0: Yeah, and then our defense spending is what two trillion? <laughs> I wish it was two trillion. I <laughs> it. One trillion. Yeah, take yeah,
1: one hundred seventy-seven billion. Um, yeah. Okay. It's like, okay, come on, man. Like, well, clearly, one guy has spent more money. It's like, not only are we spending more money, we have we have a, perf- a professional, non conscripted army with a ton of, and all these all these technologies domestically produced. It's like, mm-hmm. if I, if I like, like, yeah, like I get that you want the boogeyman. The boogeyman creates a narrative, but like sometimes when you, it's not a multipolar world, sometimes it is a unipolar world where it's like, you no, know, the dude who's spending a trillion dollars a year, who is spending five times more than the entire government of its near peer, quote unquote near peer, yeah, oh, you, you win. Yeah, <laughs> come on, <laughs> it's,
0: let's not overthink this. <laughs> So then uh, is China a more reasonable uh, one to, to or uh, I guess rival to use your term? Or I mean, are they uh, are they going to turn out to be paper tiger as yeah, well? Because does China even innovate?
1: No, no. so that so th- this is very interesting. So to run down this rabbit hole a little bit. So there is a process called the Dutch machine. all right, And that's basically what creates really, really tiny microprocessors for uh, chips. Mm-hmm. Taiwan uh, produces about 60 to 70% of them. But China has 80%... I actually wrote my uh, master thesis on this, and so I, I feel like a super nerd, and I could talk about it about 30 pages. I feel like I get to nerd out occasionally. Um, <laughs> so China has 80% of the, of the rare earth metals on Earth, right? Yes. But it doesn't have the technology to actually make small enough microprocessors that can be used for, like, a missile system, for a, um, you know, for smart for smart systems, like an aircraft and stuff like that. They have to rely on right. other countries to make those. Neither Russia does have this technology either. And basically people won't sell China this this technology. So China can make you really efficiently a bunch of microwaves, but it can't make you cruise missiles. Mm-hmm. And But see, China doesn't have an offensive of posture. I wonder like, you know, look, if we look at like, say, uh, and you know, it's as much as you can trust, but you know, it's as much as you can trust any government. Uh, if we look at China's, let's look at their nuclear policy, all right, their nuclear poli- nuclear missile policy. They only have 200, about 250, 400, that's about the estimate for nuclear warheads. I know that's just weird it's like only 400.
0: I know. <laughs> but they
1: actually don't even keep them linked together. So, like, they have ICBMs, but they store the, um, you know, the actual nuclear device separately. Um, they aren't, they don't have a blue water fleet. Like, they don't have, they don't have the ability to go travel across an ocean and invade a country.
0: Yeah, they're not force projecting into, the, like, the Atlantic. But
1: exactly. Like, you know, they want the South China Sea. Um, you know, they, they want, you know, they obviously want, I, I read a great article recently, I forget where I read it, saying that China's posturing to Taiwan. Is because this, the Chinese Communist Party party likes having Taiwan as always being that th- person to blame. Because even oh. when they were actively shelling Taiwan in the 60s, this is the weirdest thing in the world. They actually negotiated. So, like, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, China would fire. And then Tuesday, <laughs> Thursday, Saturday, Taiwan would fire. And we're not going to do it. So, like, there were no fatalities. It was just, those guys would leave. And I'm like, yeah, is that really... Are you really trying to, like, quote-unquote, like, fight? like No. In, so... But China reached its population uh, bulb in 2014. Uh, The population has been declining. And on top of that, they don't have a stock market. So people buy real estate. 80% of new home sales in China are second or third plus homes. It's not your primary home. And these entire cities are just empty because people are always going to want to invest. But when you don't have an economy, when you don't have a market, essentially, like a stock market, you're going to invest in a tradable asset like real estate. The problem is that a tradable asset, like when you invest in stock markets, you're investing in a company's ability to produce right like yes yeah. even though you're not giving that money directly to the co- co- uh, the company because you're buying on the secondary market you're saying hey i think tesla's gonna get better at this i think this guy's gonna get better at this real estate doesn't do that mm-hmm. unless you're using that real estate for production productive purposes like um like a factory or something but just buying a condo in some rural uh chinese city is not a productive mean so right. if price rises but production doesn't rise we call that a bubble the, the, the definition of a bubble. So they're in this bubble. I mean, they, every other economy on earth is increasing interest rates. China is lowering interest rates, um, so hmm. they, they they have uh, you know they have massive default liabilities. They built more high speed rail than the rest of the world has combined, but they build it to areas where there's really no demand. China kind of follows this path where they continuously invest in.
0: Yeah, they they did that. Uh, I mean, I understand the idea of investing in infrastructure, but yeah, they did that with roads, with all the services and stuff to put that together. I think they put steel mills every 100 kilometers throughout like most yeah, of the yeah. country, yeah, yeah. but they can't produce good steel. So, I mean, what's the point? <laughs> so
1: that, that's, you know, see, I think the world's a much safer, much calmer, less scary place, but I think people like narratives that make it sound scary. Yes. So let yes. me... Let me uh, let me throw something out here that's kind of interesting. So China, you hear that stat? China poured more concrete, built more steel than the U.S. in the nineteen in the nineteen uh, hundreds, which is true. But you know, what's funny is that the U.S. has is stupidly aligned, alar- is stupidly built. Like it's a it's a joke how well our geography, natural resources, and geographic location yeah. benefits us. We have everything.
0: Access to two major oceans, <laughs> right. two major markets that you can't beat that.
1: Yeah, and you have. Domestic uranium, domestic steel, domestic thing, all this uh-huh. stuff. But particularly um, what is problematic to China is um, coal production. Right? So China produces a ton of coal. Um, yep. Germany consumes a ton of coal. I think Germany is like up to 50% coal production right
0: now. Oh, still? Really? Yeah, because they're, they're trying to get off Russian
1: gas and so they're burning
0: Oh, burning yeah, coal. okay. yeah. Um, but
1: coal, not all coal is created equal. So in the United States, you have Eastern, you have Western coal. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Western coal is very clean, burning, dry, all that stuff. Um, yeah. Easter coal is um, is wet coal, um, and that coal is like anthracite coal, so home heating fuel, like home heating mm-hmm. coal, something like that. But you can tell I went to WVU because I know way too much about coal. I should know this. one.
0: I know more than I should too, just <laughs> because of uh, electrodes from steel mills. Oh, yeah,
1: exactly, <laughs> right, exactly.
0: So yeah,
1: metallurgical uh, coal, which is used to create steel through the Bessemer process. Um, yep, which was as Andrew, Andrew Carnegie it's crazy many years
0: later yeah yeah
1: <laughs> um, china doesn't have that coal so they have to imp- so to build all that steel they have to import it mostly from australia and the united states and it's like when you are reliant for your primary inputs for your economy on another nation you don't you're in a bad spot
0: yeah it, it becomes hard to ever be a belligerent in uh, any sort of conflict yeah, at that point
1: ironic to china's diplomatic policy because if you follow like chinese diplomats on twitter they tend to always be like uh, you know, inflammatory. And I think that's I think that's part of their policy. I don't think that's like a. I just think that's part of their strategy for a country that has relatively, if we look over historically, hasn't been really belligerent. Um, you know, they, they they haven't been a a country that tries to get involved in other affairs. And in fairness, they've also went through you know a very very dark period. Right. Um. You know, one of the biggest lies you ever hear I've ever heard in my life is, oh, China lifted 400, billion, 400 million people out of poverty." And I'm like, "Yes, if you start from." The Mao. <laughs> if you go from what China was before the Communist Party, they haven't lifted anybody out, out of poverty. They, they put a bunch of people into poverty.
0: Oh, and then lifted them out.
1: Lifted them out. I'm like, dude, if I crash the plane and then pull up on the yoke, that doesn't make me a good pilot. <laughs> like, what am I doing here? Right. But, it, it, but that's the poison pill of communism. That's the poison pill of central planned economies. I look at like, it's funny, I look at like uh, the Soviet Union, All right, my grandparents outlived the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Like They were they lived longer than the Soviet Union existed. And I'm like...
0: Oh, that's crazy to think about.
1: Yeah, like my grandmother died when she was 97. And I'm like, yeah, you outlived the Soviet Union by like like 20 years. She like outlived the Soviet Union by like my age. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, so that's a failed system. <laughs> like, yeah. why, why are we trying this? <laughs> like, stop trying this? <laughs> 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 what does China have to do? China's like, oh, no, we want this, you know, this, we want this communist style. So, all right, cool, cool. Okay, you yeah, know, moving along. Like, yeah, but we're going to make 26 areas of the country um, free markets okay well it's 26 areas oh just the biggest ones what so, so you, you don't believe in communist ideology no we do just not in these specific places so we can collect the money from that to continue to do the communist ideology it's like you, if your system relies on capitalism do what you want you're, you're, you're using it's capitalism
0: oh it's such a weird thing and i remember uh was it malcolm, uh, malcolm gladwell's book uh, that he wrote about geopolitics like just predicting like the next hundred years of the country or the world he talked about a lot about China in there and about how it always goes through these cycles where the rich areas get too rich and the poor areas get poorer and eventually those poor areas rise up and overthrow the rich areas and that happens every yeah. it happens on a uh, cycle is like happens very frequently.
1: Yeah, I mean China has a fascinating history. It's a, like it, it, it's just an interesting area of the world and but there is no freedom without economic freedom mm-hmm. and I think that sometimes in the Western world, we forget that. Like we're so used to having just unilateral economic freedom. I mean, there's always a discussion about political freedom and stuff like that, but economic freedom in the United States, in the Western world as a whole, is
0: unbelievable. Well, what, what, can you define that? Like, what do you mean by economic freedom? What is...
1: So the ability to start a business, the ability to freely interact in the economy. So for example, like I can go take, I can get my car and right i drive to Chick-fil-A and get a salad. Right? Mm-hmm. Um I, yeah, I said salad because I have celiac disease so I can't eat their Chick-fil-A sandwich. And I want to include that because I'm, just, I'm oh, sure yeah. you have other <laughs> listeners. My wife want, would like, be wondering
0: <laughs> what that was all about. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, would just eat, like, at it.
0: Chick-fil-A salad? What? Why?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's about everything he said over the last five right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the clip. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we can... I really hope that's... <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to see a Discord channel angry me after that um but yeah so we can we can exchange freely in this economy we can we can go buy whatever we want go like you know mm-hmm. um just go like go buy place you know if they have it go buy a playstation 5. um but if you look at it's it, even the concept of a of free economic of a of economic freedom can be weird i have a, a good friend and she's a brilliant economist and she did her she did her uh her phd dissertation on inflation in the soviet union and she studied that how did how inflation exists whether it's in dollars times whatever And mm-hmm. people would just see a long line and stand in it mm-hmm. in the soviet union because they'd be like oh that must be important that's how they judge price
0: oh they do that here you you that's a fun game to play if you go find a busy street just go stand outside of a building like with a couple people and then just see how many people get in line yeah, with you
1: you have a fascinating definition of like use of your free time but is this like something you like I, I, now i want to do this
0: <laughs> i i've i've read stories of people doing it i've been wanting to try it but i just don't have enough friends <laughs>
1: i <laughs> will I'll get, get uh,
0: I gotta get them to fly out here nobody wants to fly out to go stand in a line that we made uh, up
1: <laughs> it's like the ladder theory like if you're holding a ladder you can walk anywhere like
0: yo yo never heard of that one. you just
1: take a ladder and then you walk to a sporting event and you're like oh i gotta get in there they'll let you through um oh
0: that's brilliant
1: one of the so it's funny we have a we have a very historic building and uh, we have a lot of historic buildings in quincy and we have a library that was built uh by uh, like it's like it's like the twenty sixth most historically significant building in the uh, in the United mm-hmm. States. It's, it's like one of the first public libraries, and uh, I had a I had a vendor in who was I forget what he was doing, but he's a big history buff, and he was like, "Oh, I'd love to go like into that library." So the Bondfield Library is always open. You know, it's the same way it was when it was built in eighteen twenty six, and but upstairs has all these books from like hundreds of years ago. Um,
0: oh, I want it, to see. It's that. a blast.
1: Uh, if you ever, if you ever, yeah. you go in there. So. Uh, I was like, dude, do you want to go up there and see it? I mean, they have like books, they've like the, they, we have an entire, it's like a sh- massive shelf that's full of like the laws of the Commonwealth from 1710. I was like, dude let's, let's, shit. dude, let's go up there. I mean, let's go up there and check it out. So I walk over to the stairs and one of the librarians, very nice, very nice woman comes over to me and goes, oh, I'm sorry, you can't go upstairs. I go, oh no, it's fine. I, uh, no, it's fine. I work for the city. She goes, okay. Walks away. And I, I walk upstairs. <laughs> and the uh, the vendor's like, what? "What? what was that? And I was like, what? Like, do you know her? I was like, no. And he's like, you could have just lied, and I was like, no, I've noticed. Yeah, if you say stuff with enough confidence, that was weird. A... Yeah, yeah, like, no, it was fine. <laughs> I was like, oh, yep, yep. You just,
0: just gotta own yeah. it. She
1: was like, over oh, it, just like casually walked away. I was like, oh, well, first off, I respect her saying that. I respect her actually trying to stop it, but I wanted to be hmm. feel like you should have been a little more like, how do I know I'm you? Like to to it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is creepy when you go up there though. Is uh. Apparently, people must have been a lot shorter back then because uh, I'm, I'm about 6'4. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Guardrail is like knee, knee size, like knee height. <laughs> I'm, like, oh, I'm going to die this time. I don't like heights. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, definitely. Uh, the, the nutrition levels have changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good with it. Since the 1800s. <laughs> um, I, I, we're so far off topic now. <laughs> I don't even remember what we're talking about. We actually
1: believe not. We got this on on uh, China. Being, is China really a paper tiger?
0: And uh, yeah, what I have right. to say to
1: that is, um, as somebody does like to use the term, like you know, is it a paper tag or what do you want to say? I don't think it is in the same way as like Russia. Um, I don't think it's this like I think Russia is a lot of like chest pumping. Um, mm-hmm. China and the U.S. have the world's most interesting trade arrangement. Uh, about fifty-four percent of uh, goods we import from China, about fifty-six percent of uh, raw material China uses gets imported from us. Mm-hmm. I think they do a lot of... You know, do I think they do a lot of espionage? Yeah. Do I think every country in the world does a lot of espionage? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just... I, it's not... I don't think they're... I don't think it's the same geopolitical threat that we saw with the Soviet Union. Um, it's already on the population. Right. It's already has population decline. It, it, it's never developed into a first world throughout the entire country. Um, the absolute horror that's going on with the Uyghur people um, in uh, Western China... Is not the hallmark of a developed country. Mm. Again, not that the U.S. hasn't had atrocities. I'm not trying to do what about isms, but I'm saying they're not hallmarks of an economy as a as, because that's the only real topic I can speak on, right? Is yeah. economics? Yeah, yeah. Um, is it's not the hallmark of something that I can see overtaking us. And seeing the what the risk of default, seeing the overbuilding, seeing the over uh, the use of you know devaluing their currency, the use of lowering interest rates. In an in inflationary environment, which is weird, it shows me that that's not an economy that's a threat. It, it shows me that, and especially how tied we are with them. It, it doesn't have the hallmarks to maybe go. Oh crap! So, it's more as like, hey, we're married to them.
0: Yeah, it's like uh, they need us more, or as much as we need them. That I wouldn't lose any sleep over any potential conflicts.
1: No, I, it, that's the thing about it. It's like, are they going to date Taiwan? Like, I don't know. I'm not a soothsayer. But what, what's the, what's to the gain there?
0: Yeah, what's the like, benefit? Yeah.
1: It, there's a benefit to thumping your chest and going, "Yeah, look how strong the CCP is," but there's no benefit from actually doing it. I mean, it's—I uh,
0: mean, maybe getting access to TSM semiconductor facilities,
1: which so I have a—okay, the- you, you can make fun of me on this. So I have a theory on this, and it's—it's it's the borest theory in the world. <laughs> they would just
0: move TSM. Oh yeah, they probably would.
1: Like <laughs> the people who know how to do that
0: would—yeah—just
1: would be like, "Oh, okay." Like okay, hey yep. Austin, Texas, congratulations! You have the world's largest <laughs> <certificate> <laughs> facility. I just, I just think that's what would happen.
0: <laughs> that or Vietnam, or they go somewhere else. Yeah,
1: yeah. Like, I end up like watch, like watch TV, like oh, this would destroy. I'm like, no, they would just like go somewhere else and build it. Like they're just second, like, this isn't like it's not like it's an oil field where you have to be geo- geographically located, right? Yeah. Just be like
0: No, they already have okay. the technology. They know what they're yeah, doing. Right. They just go do it somewhere else. <laughs> ah. <Yeah, right. laughs> <laughs> uh. Oh, I think we covered quite a bit. I don't know that anything was market related, but I definitely uh, had a really fun geopolitical conversation, I guess you yeah, call man. it. Uh, always fun having you on, Eric. I mean, learned a ton. Uh, but I guess, you know, fortunately, we probably do have to let you go back to, to doing your government job or enjoying the oh, yeah. weekend because this is a Saturday. One.
1: <laughs> Kyle, as always, you know, I love being on with you guys. It's always fun to have this conversation. I know we, I know we, uh you get a little scattered, but that's the best part about it. You know,
0: economics is available everywhere. That's the best part about I, it. I agree. Uh, we'll make sure there's that uh, We don't let as much time go past. In fact, actually, uh might be fun to grab you because um, we've been doing those those news updates on Wednesdays. I think the uh, Fed is supposed to be uh, um, announcing the next rate hike decision. Yeah. And the guy yeah. I do it with normally, Eric, He's he's been complaining that he's not an economist and I've been turning him into one because we keep talking about all this economic <laughs> policy stuff. Maybe you want to join us for one of those
1: absolutely anytime i love Fed talk uh,
0: great okay (laughs) we
1: do about um i do about i've done about two billion dollars in borrowing um since i've taken over as cfo so i do yeah i do i I go to market about once a quarter okay so i that is uh both the band of my existence but also something i find incredibly fascinating
0: oh it sounds like okay we'll put that together then for sure absolutely All right, folks, Uh, thanks for sticking around to the end. Uh, If you want to learn more about Eric, make sure you give him a follow on LinkedIn, or you can check out that website at theinformaleconomist.com. We'll have links for all that in the episode description. But uh, for now, we'll say goodbye to Eric. uh, And thank you for taking the time to chat with us. And thank you to everybody who stuck around to the end. Back soon with another exciting episode. But till then, bye. Have a good one, everybody.